1 John. We are finishing 1 John today. And so chapter 5, um, you can go to chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 14, and I will read through to the end of the chapter. You can follow along in your own Bibles. Uh, verse 14, 1 John 5 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children... Keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Lord, in your presence now, we, we come um, not wanting to uh, just to form opinions about something that someone said um, or to, to come to master uh, a text or a theological concept or anything like that. Lord, we're, we're coming to receive uh, real sustenance, real nourishment from your word by your spirit. And so we do pray for understanding, we pray for light, we pray for uh, an illumination in our, uh, in our hearts so that the spiritual understanding that is necessary for grappling with these things. Um, but even with the things that we don't understand, and there might be some, uh, we pray that there would be rest in your presence because you, Jesus, you are the eternal God and everlasting life. You are the one in whom uh, we take refuge and hope. You have all our hope. And our goodness is nothing apart from you. So bless us, anoint our eyes and our ears and our understanding so that we can receive what you have for your church today. Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Uh, we come to the end. Uh, an end. We come to an end. Uh, good Goodbyes can be hard, right? You know, I, I know I'm not good at them. I think, I think the person who thinks they're good at that kind of thing isn't good at other things, like living or feeling. Uh, but for the, for the rest of us, like, goodbyes can be hard. You know, and and when I when I started here, when I started here as the pastor, I started the midweek Bible study. Uh, I guess I should put a plug in for midweek Bible study. That's been coming uh, Wednesday at 630. We enjoy a meal. Bible study starts at seven. You get the rerun, the same Bible study, just new and improved on Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Um, you can come to either of those. We're going through the book of Second Kings right now, and it's just about to get good. Um, so you're not too late. You're not too late. You should come. Uh, but when I started, I figured I'd start in Genesis because that's where you start. And we're in 2 Kings, which you can see how fast we've been going through that. Uh, I started in Genesis 1-1. I figured that was the best place to start a career as a Bible teacher. And on Sunday mornings, I started 1 Timothy because that way I could say, let no one despise your youth and, and, new, and that as a 22-year-old pastor at the time, I needed that stuff, needed that. Um, but in, in Genesis, we studied that book for, and it took a long time. It was more than six years later that I finished Deuteronomy. 
and I did not see it coming, but I got emotional. I had to say goodbye to, to Moses. And I'm like, I've been with Moses a long time. Like the first five books, they're called the books of Moses. And, and I really had become attached to this guy. I felt like Moses walked with me through early ministry life. Um, and, and now we've, we've been in 1 John a much shorter time, of course. But before that, we were in the Gospel of John. And for better or for worse, John has shaped our ministry uh, for the last uh, more than a year. Uh, it was a while. It's been a little while. Um, and so we've got we to say goodbye to 1 John, of course. It's more of a see you, see you later because next week we're going to do 2 John. So, um, but still, it's, it's a goodbye. It's a goodbye. It's a signing off. And famous last words, right? Those You kind of want to think that they matter. You kind of want to think that the closing paragraph of your favorite book has some sort of you know, meaning that it wraps everything up. And last week we ended with a very important verse, 5.13, John 5.13, um, where John says that he wants us to know that we have eternal life. And then at the end, almost the end, nearly the last verse, verse 20, he ends with this phrase again, eternal life. And he's talking about Jesus Christ, who he says is the true God and eternal life. This is eternal life. It's, un, it's unbroken fellowship, enjoying unbroken fellowship with God himself through Jesus Christ. For us, for Christians, Jesus is eternal life. There is no eternal life or life without him. Jesus says as much in the Gospels. To be with Jesus, to taste and see that he is good, that is to partake in a quality of life called eternal and you can do that now. So John ends with those kinds of thoughts here. Now, if you go all the way back to chapter one, John shared another reason for writing this book. He, he let his, his purposes be known very clearly throughout 1 John. Uh, he wrote in chapter one, verse three, uh, I'll read it to you. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So this, this fellowship with God through Jesus is <clears throat> where John begun. It's sort of where he got his credentials in the first place. He's like, I knew Jesus. We're best friends. So let me tell you about him. And, and then now he's you know, been operating in his area of expertise, which is fellowship with Jesus. He's been leading us to fellowship with God. And now it is in the fellowship of God where John is going to leave us. If God gives us eternal life, we can conclude that God wants to be with us forever and that forever starts now. So John, John has given confidence to his readers about their eternal life. He says, you can know that you have eternal life, um, which is this life of fellowship with Jesus that starts now and ends never. And then he 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 trans transfers naturally to confidence in prayer. He says, if you know that you have eternal life with God right now, then that's going to affect and color the way that you communicate with this God who is eternal life. Prayer is the expression of that fellowship with God. You don't really have fellowship with a person if you never communicate with them through any means whatsoever. And prayer is our communication with the Lord. So in verse 14, he says, now this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, I mentioned that goodbyes can be hard because we want to be with the one that we love. John's conclusion to this letter is a testament to the endurance of our relationship with God. This isn't a goodbye because we have prayer. 
When you say goodbye to John, but John was never leading you to fellowship with him. He was leading you to fellowship with Jesus. And prayer is not like another long-distance relationship. It's not just a phone call. Through prayer, God ministers to our hearts, and he actually comes and, to use a very John word, he abides with us. He makes his home with us. So in prayer, John says, have confidence. Because you know, have eternal, you, you know you have eternal life, you can have confidence in the way you live your life right now. It's one of communicating with the creator and lover of your soul. Now this flows from what John has taught us about the God he knows and loves, that he is a loving father. That's been a real theme in John's writings. And this confidence is expressed in our prayers, specifically in how we ask God for things in prayer. Now in the book of James, it, James says, you have not because you ask not, right? So giving this, this image, which is really helpful to have in prayer, I think, of God having all the things and just waiting to dole them out to the person who asks for them. It's like, I want to give this to you. I'm just waiting. We've done this before. You have to ask. You really need to ask me. Um, James says, you have not because you ask not. We need to ask for things in prayer, confidently. And I'm, I'm sure you've all heard the infomercial prayers, right, where the person just gives God a lecture, um, perhaps a theological dissertation or family history three generations back. Um, but hardly ever actually gets around to the actual prayer request. No, you've never prayed with that person? Okay, then you are that person. Um, so, you know, like, you, you know those kinds of prayers that you never really get to the thing that you're actually asking God for? I'm sure we've all been guilty of that. And in my defense and yours, not all prayer is a request, right? Um, it's okay sometimes to dwell in God's presence and rejoice over his attributes and not ask for a thing. But some prayer is asking a lot of it is, actually. And we are told to ask. This is all very reminiscent of the upper room discourse in John's gospel, which shouldn't be a surprise coming from John. In John 15, 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. That's what Jesus says. That's a great explanation of how this works. Because he, he says, if my words abide in you, then you'll ask what you desire. And you can trace those concepts because your desires are shaped or even defeated or replaced by the abiding word, the, 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 the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, as Peter talks about it. Now, John is saying when we ask that, John is saying now that when we ask, our Father hears us. And he says, whatever you ask, in his name, you've heard this before, this is in the Gospels, this is in the Epistles, he'll give you what you ask for. There's got to be a catch. What's the catch? Well, it's, it's not fine print, it's the same, well, all Bibles are fine print, right? Um, but they print them really small so they can fit the whole book there. Um, so read, read all the fine print in the whole Bible. It says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And in the John 15 passage, it explained it like this, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, that's when you ask and I give because you're asking the things that I let you want. <laughs> That's the catch. We wonder sometimes how we can pray according to his will and if we could find a secret word, right? Or a, a magic method and then God will do what we want, finally. That's not how it works. And we, we do not pray to change God's will. We pray to discover God's will and even be shaped by his will. If you haven't had the the beautiful opportunity to look back and let out a sigh of relief that God gave you a big fat no to what you asked for, 
then you haven't been praying enough. You know, and to be like, I really wanted that thing. I'm really glad he didn't give me that thing that I thought I really wanted. We pray to get corrected. There's a passage like this in the prophet Habakkuk, which we're actually going to be uh, studying after 3 John. In the prophet Habakkuk, the prophet sees the word of God. He doesn't like what he sees. He doesn't like God's plan. He complains to God and says, my plan would be way better. And then he goes up on a wall, on the wall of the city, and waits for God. And what it really really says in the New King James, at least, says, I I stood there to see what he would say when I was corrected. Uh, To see how God will correct him. That's the attitude of prayer. We go and say, here's all my stuff. I've got to be wrong. But I am willing for you to say what's right. The first thing Paul says the word of God is profitable for is correction and reproof. And so when we have the word of God abiding in us and we pray according to the word and we have our desires shaped by the word, we are in a, in, a, in a conversation where not everything that we say is right. Prayer is, is not the place where you get the final word. I haven't found that place yet, actually, but I know it's not prayer. So we pray according to his will from abiding with him, from allowing his word to abide in us. Spend time with Jesus. You'll learn how he operates. You'll anticipate his next move sometimes, the same way you do with someone you've worked with a long time. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, we are God's fellow workers, sometimes translated co-laborers. Um, you know, you, like, like 12-year-old Jesus, are called to be about your father's business. Put the time in then. Learn the family business. You'll learn his will, and you'll learn how to pray. The ask part of prayer comes from a place of understanding who God is and how he operates. In scripture, we see people pray like this. They tell God what they know about God, and then they ask God to act act according to God's nature. I'm thinking of, of Solomon's prayer of the temple. The main thing he does is bring God's word back to him. And he says, you did this, you said this, You've always been this way. So, keep doing and saying the things that you always do and say. And this is really the best way to pray according to the will of God. Understand the scriptures and pray accordingly. Pray scripture. Now, this can be tricky because as you know so well, I can do all things with a verse taken out of context. And not all the verses in the Bible are about your current struggles. But in general, praying scripture will recenter you, refocus you on the will of God and how he has been operating since before time was and how he has been loving continually since before you were there for him to shower his blessings on. And, and this may or may not lead to what you wanted to ask for in the first place but it'll put you in a place where you are able to interact with the things that you you want, the things you want to ask for. Understanding God's will is key in prayer, and understanding scripture is the best way we have to understand God's will. Your loving Father wants you to pray. He wants us to have confidence in prayer. He wants us to pray according to his will, and praying along the will of God will often very often, lead us to pray for other people. And yes, you should pray for yourself. Uh, Pray for yourself. You know you need it. Uh, I pray for me a lot. I need it. But I pray for you too. Um, And I'm thankful that you pray for me. In verses 16 and 17, which is super confusing, is a prayer 
it's about praying according to the will of God for other people. And this is called intercession. Um, so 16 and 17, it says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Okay, so last week, if you missed it, um, was a ton of fun. Uh, we talked about the blood and the water and the spirit and tried to untie that knot. Okay, um, here's some more knots. Glad you got the practice. This is a hard passage. It can be a disturbing passage for some. What is this? Last week I said that all scripture is equally true. Not all scripture is equally clear. And we determined the best way to handle an unclear passage is to return to safe ground. Find out what is clear and know what truths are held tightly and then what interpretations require uh, a more open hand. Um, more intellectual humility. A lot of humility. This is a passage about praying for other people and it is a passage about sin. That's the, that's the clear thing. I think we can agree on that part. There's no code words that would throw us off of that interpretation. Apparently, there are different kinds of sin here. And actually, as you read through Scripture, you see that there's lots of different kinds of sin. Sin includes your thoughts, your words, your actions. It includes your motives. Sin exists in different categories. Doing things you shouldn't when you commit a sin. That's a sin of commission. Then there's the sin of not doing what you really know you should. That's the sin of omission. James says to him who knows to do good, doesn't do it. To him, it is sin. So there's, there's layers here. There's texture. Sin is also something we have by nature as well as by choice. We inherit a sin nature from Adam, and it turns out we're really, really good at it. And we do a lot of improvisation, and we usually like it. So we sin by nature and by choice. So that, that's sin. We know there's varieties. There's different kinds. There's lots of mistakes you make when it comes to understanding sin. There's, there's sin that you know you do, and then there's sin that you didn't know you did. Jesus prays from the cross, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. They didn't know the, the, how serious their sin actually was. Um, and there's different mistakes we make when it comes to encountering our sin. Usually it's ignoring it or excusing it. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, there's the problem of dead religion, which is trying to control it or reform it without resurrection. That's another problem. Um, you know, you, to, to say you just, just control the sin without any sort of relationship with God. We don't, we don't want that. We don't believe in that, that our faith exists simply for moral improvement. We believe in resurrection, right? New life. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. All sin. There's no variation made in that passage. No categories are formed. All sin. That's important when we compare that to our passage in John. Remember, we're coming back to what we do know so we can better handle this passage that talks about things we might not be clear on. Sin is a big deal. Uh, there are severe consequences, and this is very applicable to everyone here because as Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. We are, um, we're, we're all in the same sinking ship. <laughs> so all sin, all have sinned, and the wages of all sin is death. So what do we do? do about it. Okay, we're still on firm ground here. I'm not speaking controversial doctrine at this point. The one thing we do about sin in our own lives is we repent. Repent and believe. But what do you do about other people's sin? Because you'd much rather think about that, I'm sure. So <laughs> I'm glad you asked. What do you do about that other person's sin? You pray about it. That's first. That's what you do. You pray about it. 
That's the clear stuff. Now this also clears out a whole lot of other things you might do when you encounter another person's sin. What we do, um, you know, when we see a person in sin and we, we have a, a, a burden for them, the proper thing to do with that burden is to bring it to Christ. Now sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, it's not a burden. It's uh, not like Christ would have. It's more of an irritation because their sin is stupid and worse than mine. And it's annoying, uh, you know, that, that speck in their eye. And uh, like all sin is, I need to deal with it. And sometimes you want to fix it. And sometimes you're fixing their problem isn't what Christ had in mind when he said, bear one another's burdens. And you might be skipping that whole plank in your own eye step as well. So it's a really good idea to see that the first thing you do about another person's sin is you pray about it. There's a right way to do this. We don't always do it the right way. Or maybe a, a less wholesome solution. We, we might see sin and we talk about it, but say that we're praying. Now that another one of those infomercial prayers, right? Under the guise of prayer, we gossip. That's also not what John is saying about uh, how to deal with another person's sin. So we're still on firm ground here. We're working our way up to the confusing part. When we encounter another person's sin, th the thing to do about it is to pray. Pray first. If you have that burden for the person in your life who has sin, who is hurting themselves because of their sin, and you really, really just feel like you have to talk about it. And I get this. I'm a verbal processor. It's a terrible thing to be. I don't know what I think until I say it. It's very dangerous. It's really, really bad. Pray for me. Okay, you, you want to talk about the thing. So God says, okay, okay, okay. Talk to me about it. Talk to me about the thing, please. Now, these are simple things. This is common ground, the place we can plant our feet and agree on, and we look at this unclear sin leading unto death thing. Uh, once more, when the Bible is unclear, we need to be humble. So it's okay to say, I don't know. Um... Or to say that I'm, I don't know with the same you know, degree of confidence that I have with other passages. So let's wade in here together. Uh, John says there is a sin not leading to death. It should be prayed for and that brother will be restored. And then he says there is a, a sin leading to death. And he's saying, I'm not talking about that kind of sin. I'm not saying you should pray about that thing. John says about the sin not leading to death, pray for this. And I'm not talking about the sin leading to death. One thing off the bat, John never says, absolutely do not pray for that guy. Christians, do not pray for that kind of sinner. They are beneath you. They're too far gone. You just can't incorporate them into your prayer life. No, and that's never what it says here. He does not forbid prayer. He just says, on he stays on task, talking about restoring a brother to you. And he says, I'm talking about praying for this category, whatever that is. And I'm not talking about prayer for the sins of that category, the sins leading to death. That's very different than saying, do not pray for those sinners. They're just too rotten. So let's go in with that understanding. Let's read carefully. The first theory, I suppose, and it's a good one, is that the sin leading to death that John is writing about is active apostasy, unrepentant, Christ-rejecting heresy. Someone who has been in the church, may have even been a teacher in the church, and then they have abandoned the faith. These would be people that John called antichrists, very unflattering term. John had already talked about that in 1 John. Paul talks about false teachers. Sorry, um, yeah, John had talked about that. Paul does talk about false teachers who he excommunicated. 
And he says, I delivered them to Satan that they might not learn or that, that might, they might learn not to blaspheme. Okay. And, and Paul, in talking to the church, it's, you can read between the lines and you could see that he would tell them, I'm not asking you to go to these false teachers and say, can we pray together? He says, no, no, like they're, they're, dis they're distant from you on purpose. They have to be over there. They're learning a lesson there. I'm not saying go pray with them about their sin. And prayer in scripture is often a communal activity, which also shines some light on this passage. So could it be that John is referring to these people who had been delivered to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme? Many people believe that's who he's talking about. Maybe his audience would have been aware of these people, had you know names and faces that come to mind when he brings this up, who people had left the church, who were like those who Hebrews talks about in Hebrews chapter 6. Um, 6 verse 4, it says, for, those, for it is possible for those who were once enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift who have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So there's this kind of severe and public and apparent apostasy um, that's hard to read about. And I don't know if we fully understand it, but it could be that those who have been enlightened and then left are those who are committing what John calls the sin leading to death, saying like, I don't want you to go pray with those people. However, that, that does present a little problem because verse 16 says that this is a brother who is sinning. Um, the apostate person who has abandoned the faith, many point out, might not be called a, a brother. However, I'm playing both sides here. I really am, okay? So you're going to land somewhere in the middle. John does see those guys out there as brothers. This is how John sees things. In chapter 3, verse 10, he talks about a brotherhood that even apostates share with believers because that's just the kind of guy John is. Chapter 3, verse 10, 10 says, If this is the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Meaning the apostate does not love his brother and then is revealed to be a child of the devil by not loving his brother. And then chapter 3, verse 14, it says, he who does not love his brother abides in death. So when we spoke about believers and sin and the one who sins isn't born of God and things like that earlier in the book, we made a distinction, or rather we found a distinction. Committing a sin is not the same as continuing in sin. Sinning and then choosing a lifestyle of unrepentant sin are two very different things, and you have to come to that understanding if anything John says is going to make any sense. So first off, the idea that John calls these guys brothers doesn't necessarily mean they are apostate based on chapter 3 and how he uses the word brother. But then we remember that there is sin and then there is habitual unrepentant sin. John has already said we all sin, but that's different than those who continue in unrepentant willful sin. It is that willful unrepentant sin that I believe constitutes this sin leading to death that John mentions. Whether that is doctrinal apostasy or just a willful evil, you know, living a life of public sin and not repenting, I don't know. It's assumed that a Matthew 18 principle would have been followed. You see your brother in sin, you go to him, he rejects you, you bring a, a brother, he rejects them, you bring him before the church, and then after that he becomes like a Gentile, like a tax collector and a sinner. And so it could be that person who has followed that line of sin so far that they are not in fellowship with the church anymore. 
And John is saying, I'm not talking about praying for them. He doesn't, he doesn't prevent you from praying for them, but he's not offering the promise of restoration that he gives when talking about the other category of sin. Now, we do know that there are consequences for actions. There is reaping and sowing. And the person who refuses to turn away from the wide path leading to destruction will end up at that road's destination. If this is the case, then what John is advising is that you pray for the sins and the sinners who are in the fold, so to speak, who will pray with you, who are not willfully turning their back on Christ. The ones who have adamantly turned, do we pray for them? Everything in us wants to shout yes, right? And, and I'll remind you that John and the rest of the scripture does not forbid it. But for the one who is a, apparently lost, who is stubbornly rebellious, the same kind of confidence in prayer does not exist. John is not promising you that things will turn out well and everything is going to be fine. The believer with the spirit of God in them will respond to your calls for repentance. That's what John wants you to have confidence in. He's giving confidence to the person who sees his brother sinning, but says, I don't really want to bug him. I don't want to bother him. That's not my business. Really, the pastor should talk to them about that. I'll call him. And, you know, they're, they're, they're thinking that, and he's saying, no, 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 no. If you, if you see your brother sinning, a sin not leading to death, we're not talking about the apostate, we're talking about the person that goes to church with you, and you see them, I want you to pray for them. Pray for them. God will restore him. Because God hears your prayers and it is his will for this reconciliation. John says, be confident in that. You're praying to a God who lives in their heart. Pray for restoration and then expect it. For the ones on their death word path, yes, we can pray, but we know that false converts are real and apostasy is real. And that is a sobering thought. This line of thinking matches with where John leads the conversation. In verse 18, he says, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. So we, we talked about this before, chapter two, the grammar is sort of lost in English, but the idea here is, is of abiding in sin, just like we are supposed to abide in Christ. It's talking about continual habitual sin. The person who's born of God lives with him, lives with God, makes his home with God. You don't see someone who is born of God and then lives in sin, unrepentant, rejecting everything of the light of the truth. A changed person is changed. If you're born of God, you get a new life. Like we sang today, your blood flows through my veins. You leave your old life. You're new. You're in the family. And, and included in this new life is protection. The wicked one does not touch him. The word for touch there really means to lay hold of, to grab onto, to seize. It's a violent word. To attach oneself to. Simply put, if you are born of God, you will be attacked, tormented, tempted, but the enemy cannot attach himself to you uh, with any degree of permanence. You are not under the control of Satan, though the whole world is. God has you in his hand and has no intention of releasing you. Now we're back on some firm ground here. That part with the sin leading to death, it's not super clear. If it's troubling you, uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't lean into that and, and do your studying and wrestle with it. That's profitable. It really is. But also remember what is clear in John's teaching. What is clear in this passage is that sinners need to be prayed for and that serious sin has serious consequences. 
And when we get into verse eight, verses 18 and 19, we see this good news that God is mightier than sin and the one who commits it and the one who tempts us to it. There's been sort of a back and forth for John throughout the whole letter. He takes sin very seriously. And he takes salvation very, very seriously. He has a very low view of the world, but he has a very, very high view of its creator. Verse 19 says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. That's a very pessimistic view of humanity. I don't need to explain this one to you. You live on the same planet that I do. But even as John has this, this alarming, uh, alarmingly dismal view of the world, he has the strongest emphasis on love of any author of Scripture. And it was John who recorded the words of Jesus, For God so loved the world. Yes, the one that's under satanic influence, that one. The only way we can get this balance of extremes is reconciliation and reconciliation of opposites is in Jesus Christ, who made the world and loves it and saves it. John ends almost where he began, with a testimony of Jesus. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. We need that understanding, do we not? That understanding will come not just from understanding tricky passages, but from understanding God. You know the passage, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord, Jeremiah 9.24. And John's final words on Jesus are really quite profound. This is his mic drop moment here, right? He says, this is the true God and eternal life. Really? What do you mean? Who, who, whoever has heard the, you know, the old lie. Well, the Bible never says that Jesus is God. It calls him the Son of God, but it never says he is God. People still believe that. They believe that about the Bible because someone told them that on an internet forum, and that's all they read. And the Bible says that Jesus is God. Here's one of the places it says this. His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is God, and knowing him is life itself, and it lasts forever. And then finally, at the very, very, very end, keep yourself from idols. Okay, let's pray. Now, weird last word, right? Um, you know, I, I dare any of you to include this as the last words on your Christmas card this year. You know, like send out the newsletter and be like, yeah, the kids, you know, like they're in college, they're coming back for the holidays, and we, we did, we remodeled the deck, and keep yourself from idols. Uh, okay. An idol is anything that you love more than God. You can expand that, really, and to say an idol can become anything that you love in a disordered fashion. Anything you love in a way you shouldn't. It becomes an idol. Uh, an idol is a savior, a false savior. If you have an idea of hell, and this is the thing that will keep you from that place, the worst thing for you um, might not be displeasing God. The worst thing for you is sickness and death, so you idolize health. Right? You're like, death, oh, that's the worst thing. That's the worst thing, and I don't like that a lot, so i got to stay alive. The worst thing for you, if the worst thing for you is becoming poor, uh, then you idolize money or your job or your security or whatever. The worst thing for you is being lonely, so you idolize a person or a relationship or whatever. Find out what the worst thing is for you and see what saves you from it. That's your idol or your savior. 
If the worst thing for you is to spend a moment separated from the love of God, Jesus can save you, and he is no, no idol. Reverse it. What's the heaven that you are pursuing? What's the best thing in your mind? What peace do you think will happen in this life? If you pursue ultimate satisfaction here, you will be inevitably pursuing an idol. What advertisements work on you? What advertisements suck you into that false sense of need with their false promise of joy? Those are idols, and you need to keep yourself from them. And we talked about praying, ask, asking for things. You know, we have much to ask God for, but I think there's much that God desires to give and is waiting for us to ask, ask him for. Um, you have not because you ask not. And then there's that verse in James that continues saying, you ask and you do not have because you ask amiss that you might spend it on your pleasures. He's talking about idolatry, right? He's saying you're asking God for things that will replace him. Don't do that. Jesus isn't going to give you your idols. Praise the Lord. Now let's pray well and not ask according to our pleasures, but rather pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we talked about praying for other people, intercession. God has a will for them as well. This is hard work that Christians are called to, but it's good work. And working for our brothers and sisters, uh, you know, through prayer, it sure beats trying to solve all their problems ourselves or just suffering through watching another's mistakes without the option of prayer. So we pray to God regarding other people's sins. And for some of you, this is how you keep yourself from idols because your idol is that idea of yourself as the problem solver. And God says, no, you got to pray about that instead and keep your hands off. Or your idol is the perfect family where no one does anything wrong and no one struggles. And these are false gods offering false hopes that you are not able to satisfy and you are to pray for and about these people first. We pray, we intercede because in prayer, we keep ourselves from idols. Probably should have had that last verse be its own sermon, but I didn't. And so we just did the whole thing. That was a lot today. Um, I think you'll agree that the main points in 1 John have been clear, no matter what little verses have come out that have been a little fuzzy. But John has very clearly uh, been leading us to love Christ, to enjoy his love, to love each other well. So let's continue to strive towards these goals with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Let's pray. God, we worship you and we love you. And we want you to bless our church, um, yes, with understanding of these things, but more than that, with obedience in these things. Um, let us love one another. Let us pray for one another well. God, let us uh, ask well and according to your word. And Jesus, we, we know that what you want for us is that we, we become holy as you are holy. So we ask that now in faith and full assurance, full confidence. We ask for a holiness in our church. Um, we know that you want us to grow and mature, so we ask for that. We ask uh, for n no stagnation, not the slightest bit of backsliding in each one. We ask for maturity. Uh, we know that you've called us to intimacy with you, so we pray that we would know and love you. And if we boast in anything, let us boast in this, that we know God. We thank you for revealing yourself to us to this end. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand.